Welcome to the Purple Political Breakdown. Is Trump's idea for opportunity zones where he would take an area in the inner city, he would cut taxes, he would give all sorts of incentives for businesses to move in. I kind of want to piggyback off that idea, but I want to do depopulation zones. I want to take people out of the city and move them into more rural areas, growing these small towns up a little bit, not adding too many people, not upsetting their, their little hegemonious community, but also with competitive districts in mind. So if you have a, an area that votes 70% GOP, you start moving in some city Democrats, not enough to upset the flow of their town, but enough to make it a competitive district. Um, with that, we start doing government housing. So in the United States right now, a 600 square foot home costs about fifteen dollars to $70,000 to build fresh. Uh, all cost, labor, everything, expenses, all the licenses you need. If we take that and we move it to an area with cheaper housing, cheaper lumber, cheaper fuel, because it's a less populated area, then and we're building in bulk. Do you want a great website like this? This is my podcast website where I direct the audience to come to watch the content, listen to the content, read the blogs, and much, much more. If you want to have your own customizable podcast website, then join my affiliate link in my description to sign up for something called PodPage, and they can help you customize an easy podcast website for your personal podcast. Sign up to get a discount now. Again, use the link in my description to join PodPage now. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode number 56 of the Purple Political Breakdown. We are back here today. And today we're going to have a very interesting conversation and referencing the housing crisis and see if we can come up with a, you know, a respectable solution or at the very least, increase the conversation on how to fix the the current issue with the increased housing rates, of course. Um, In order to have that conversation, I have a great guest today, and that guy is Tyler. How you doing, my guy? I'm doing well, thank you. No problem, no problem. Should be a very interesting conversation. Obviously, you're going to get to know Tyler a little bit more later on in the episode. Uh, If you do enjoy today's episode, as usual, you can feel free to... Rate it five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Um, go support the podcast by going www.purplepoliticalbreakdown.com. So with that said, we're going to dive into things a little bit more in-depthly. Before we kind of go into all the topics, can you tell the people a little bit about yourself? Yes, sir. Um, I'm computer programmer from New York. I moved down to Georgia. I don't really know a lot of people, so I started developing a political hobby. I got really into my state and local politics and got a lot really deep into the policy creation process. I'm trying to learn it more and more as time goes on. I am kind of a defected Democrat, but I didn't really sway to the Republicans. I just kind of am homeless. So I started listening to both sides and trying to figure out ways to take goal X side wants to do, take concerns Y side wants to do and merge them together into practical policy. I respect, I respect it. Sometimes people get stagnated with uh, trying to adhere to their side so much so that they don't even consider, you know, some give or take when it comes to certain policies. So the fact that you're you're considering that or the fact that, that your mind is a little bit more open definitely, you know, shows a lot in my opinion. Um, I get, you know, wanting to stay with your democratic 
or Republican philosophy to an extent. But I say all the time that the country was built upon compromise. We need to realize that. You're not going to have a full all-Democrat or all-Republican household so you can get only Democrat or Republican policies out the way because that kind of defeats the purpose of checks and balances in the first place, right? So, yeah, it's uh, it's very important. And there's uh, we've talked about plenty of solutions how to make the election and voting system a little bit more efficient. But with that said, before we go into our main topic, as we're going to talk about some policies and referencing the housing crisis, we're going to start off with what you need to know. What is going on in society in America? Um, I've already done a full podcast episode by now in referencing the Israel and Palestinian conflict. So I'm not going to really talk about that right now. If you want to hear the full opinions of, um, from me, you can check out the last episode where I dived into it. Kind of a little kind of quick bit for anybody who's listening. Basically, I said it's much more nuanced than you think. You sh- there's really no need to pick a side. Both sides are doing things that are bad. Killing civilians is bad. Very simple, very simple. So with that said, some things that are going on in society currently we have the United Auto Workers at Volvo Group-owned Mack Trucks facilities in three states went on a strike after a rejected rejecting a proposed five-year contract. The proposed uh, deal indicates that it was going to raise the pay raise over the next five years, 19%, a $3,500 ratification bonus, improved retirement and health benefits, and from what we know, the differences as of right now, it involves the wage increase should be more. They think they, they deserve a cost of living allowance and better work schedules as well. So they w- rejected this. They went back on strike and see if they can get a little bit more um, in terms of benefits, of course. Additionally, we have RFK, Robert F. Kennedy, some people's favorite Democrats, apparently, decided, hey, man, I'm not going to be Biden. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to run as an independent. Uh, Very interesting thing. I I definitely constantly reinforce the importance and value of uh, third parties and stuff like that. Uh, But based off the current system, what this is going to look like to me is a lot of votes taken away from Joe Biden. Is definitely what it's going to look like to me. So we're going to have to see what happens moving forward in terms of the election. It's going to be an interesting race with Donald Trump being borderline a criminal and then Joe Biden losing votes to uh, RFK. So we'll, we'll see how that kind of pans out. And then lastly, we have UK scientists have successfully used gene editing technology to create chickens that have some resistance to the avian flu. A big step forward to kind of deal with uh, one of the more deadliest flus out there, of course. Oh, and I had, did have one more thing. Ukrainian president, I'm not going to pronounce your full name, but Zelensky makes surprise visit to NATO headquarters in Brussels, urges defense ministries for military aid, and the U.S. announced that it's going to send an additional $200 million, raising the total to $43.9 billion in aid to ukraine so with all this israel and palestine stuff going on don't forget we got the ukraine and russia stuff going on as well a lot of things going on uh do you have any opinions or do you have any news that you want to tell the people 
Oh, I got a, I got opinions on everything. Um, for the most part, RFK is going to mostly hurt Biden. There's been two polls that have come out. One of them is, well, both of them show RFK getting about 10 to 15% of the vote in total. One of them shows Trump head to head with Biden tied. After RFK enters the race, Trump wins by two. One of them shows Trump winning by three. So it looks like if he does peel votes from Trump, it's going to be significantly less. So even though he's polling much higher with Trump voters, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that he was opposition to Trump's political adversary. And as soon as he's not anymore, the favor in the right wing is going to slump for him. So yeah, definitely. I'm staying out of Israel Palestine. It's it's controversial <laughs> for some reason. Um, yeah, I've heard a lot of conversations. It's getting pretty crazy on both the left and the right on their support. It, it, it kind of it's a reflection of current society on the the need to choose a side, regardless of how complicated the situation. And most people don't even know the history of the situation. At the end of the day, like it takes thirty minutes to even look up an article regarding the history. But people see headlines and hey, they go for it. They go for it, unfortunately. So lots of stuff, of course. And with that said, we're going to go into our subtopic, deep or deeper. If you don't know what this is, this is a more deep question. Get your brain turning a little bit on maybe a philosophical lens, potentially, or just a more political or social lens in terms of how abstract the question is or just at the very least make you think a little bit more so with that said this question is how do we deal with ai deep fake and the reason why i propose the question here is because it's becoming more and more apparent to me how dangerous ai technology can be in impersonating individuals especially famous individuals it's gone to the extent where i see ads on youtube youtube where they're using ai technology to impersonate famous people's voices to convince people to sign up for certain programs and if you don't know already youtube does a terrible job in vetting the people that advertise on their platform and because of that people can fall for it very easily it's kind of a more evolved version of like the the scam calls from uh, from the phone where like old people get scammed on like either buying a product or that their you know computer is hacked. Now with this new technology, the new version of old people are going to be able to get scammed by AI because it sounds exactly like the person. It's like it's hard to tell the difference if you know you can tell the difference. For example, they were doing something regarding a like uh, health care um, it looked like a, some type of health care scam and the person endorsing it was Joe Rogan's voice but it was so obvious it wasn't Joe Rogan saying this but if you don't know better if you're ignorant regarding AI and technology you're like oh Joe Rogan said this is cool okay let me sign up for it I'm gonna and go through it and it was on YouTube let me sign up for it so it really begs the question how dangerous AI technology with these deep fakes can be. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. So I think we have a lot of mechanisms in place already to deal with this. Um, I'm not sure if more would have to be passed in the vague idea of a uh, an Internet Bill of Rights. But 
let's say hypothetically someone uses Joe Rogan's voice, pretends like they're on his podcast, Joe Rogan should be able to sue for his likeness. And with that lawsuit, because somebody is using his voice to make endorsements he didn't make, you're stealing his persona, you're stealing his intellectual property. I think there is some argument to make about your your likeness being part of that extending to the internet as well. Yeah, I think it's pretty self-explanatory that in a situation with like this of stealing your likeness or even like some sort of defamation case that could happen based on how someone uses your voice or your likeness can definitely be um, warranted for sure. I wonder if we should, um, like you said, with like an Internet Bill of Rights or just like in a, at a policy level, take a little bit more of a step forward, a for, foremost approach to this to ensure that there's a certain level of standard of a this shouldn't be okay this should be illegal yes it's it's fun to an extent but the danger behind it is much it's much more great than some any type of entertainment you may gain from it especially considering how how many people can get fooled from the technology and it, it does get a little shaky when it comes down to like certain services using these that it would be very hard to get a hold of them or to properly sue them because maybe more than likely with which a lot of these cases they're probably going to be overseas right they're going to be overseas they did this they put it on the internet to kind of fool them kind of kind of like any scam stuff you see online that that tries to trick you to sign up for something or that that false oh your your computer's hack situation those are going to be the same people using this ai defect technology you're you won't be able to sue them they're across the ocean you're not going to be able to touch them unless you got some crazy hacker that could track them down but nobody's going to do that of course so having a stricter policy on the internet on youtube on twitter banning this type of stuff maybe warranted maybe warranted moving forward what do you think I think that there's going to need to be some sort of technological advancement for us to for us to be able to differentiate between real and not. And I don't know if that's possible today. So look at like uh, court standards in the past. So for a long time, eyewitness testimony was highly valued. And now as we see DNA testing come out, uh, I think it's like something like 70 percent of false convictions hinge on an eyewitness report that DNA evidence later exonerated that person. And eyewitness testimony is no longer highly valued in court. The same thing we see with polygraph tests. Before we knew polygraph tests could be could be manipulated or manipulating, um, they were very, very high held in court. I think we're going to see recordings and recorded video and things like that. The level of scrutiny put on that evidence is going to raise with the raising of these defects and whatnot. I don't think there's there's other ways to come to these conclusions. I just think that as a form of evidence, we're going to hear recordings go out the window. Yeah, I wonder if there is some type of like coding signature you can kind of uh, use to determine if uh, things are deep fakes or not. Um, because it even goes beyond the stuff that I was mentioning earlier. Like you said, in, in certain situations, tampering with evidence using AI can be a very troubling situation. Um, obviously... Typically, what what would happen, which is why I want you know the government to take a um, set forward approach on this, you know, uh, definitely take a hands on approach on this, is like something serious happens. This goes to 
of the courts. It gets raised a level, another level, and then it's in the Supreme Court. And then we have case law regarding it and referencing, especially. Uh, I'm, I am curious to see how, how people are going to kind of translate this in reference to freedom of speech online uh, with AI technology and the usage of it, of course, uh, because, you know, it, it's kind of similar to the AI technology of, of art because there's a lot of complaints about AI art as well. From what I've seen, a lot of the AR, AI art that are that is created cross-references a lot of pre-existing art to create the, the art that they create artificially. But is it really artificially if it's, you know, using basically templates of other art across the internet? It's it's reaching a very touchy point. AI is reaching a very touchy point. And it really didn't start getting popular until like last year. And it's already re reaching a very dangerous point. So we'll see how everything plays out. Of course, if you're listening, if you hear something on the internet, or even if you hear ad on YouTube, from a person unless you got a raw footage and of that person then don't believe it do not believe it just because it sounds good or just because it sounds like the person this technology can be very uh, manipulating for sure definitely check once or twice before you do anything of course so with that said let's kind of dive into our topic at hand before we kind of dive into this for Thursday episodes when I do these 1v1 discussions with the guests, I like the audience to kind of get to know their their kind of affiliation, political identity, so people can understand that these conversations, regardless of identities, can happen. And regardless of your perspective, the goal stays the same. So you did mention a little bit about your political identity before, but just to reiterate, what is your political affiliation or identity identity as of right now the easiest way to put it is i'm a clinton democrat uh neoliberal that word kind of has different meanings depending on the context uh more in the way that it was describing bill clinton with some keynesian economic policies with a central core of free market i guess Reaganite liberalism at the core with Keynesianism to kind of supplement. Um, I like a lot of things that Bill Clinton did, especially once he lost the House majority and he had to work across the aisle. I like balancing the budget. I like policing crime and things like that. But at the end of the day, I'm still in favor of a strong safety net and propping people up instead of just letting them suffer from the consequences of maybe even just their circumstances. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. With that said, what is your opinion about current political discourse? Um, obviously, we've had conversations on this on this platform before, and other than the Civil War, do you think current political discourse is as you know is as bad as it's ever been? No, I think what we're seeing online is a lot of younger people coming in with piss and vinegar and not a lot of historical references. I see a lot of people who seem to think politics started the moment they started paying attention. And I feel like as these people get a little older, they dial it back a little bit. Uh, Destiny is a good example. 10 years ago, Destiny, well, maybe not 10 years ago, five years ago, Destiny was a very opinionated kind of a dick. And now he seems to be a really decent dude that'll hear out both sides pretty openly and i feel like as people age they realize that political adversaries aren't their enemies um 
I just think online we see a lot of young people, so you don't get that. Once you turn on, once you unplug and go outside, I can talk to people on both extremes and never tensions will never rise. But on the internet, they're pretty angry. Hmm. I would be initially. I feel like that was the, definitely the case for a good chunk of the time throughout history. You know, obviously we realize that people who are when going to college tend to be liberal for the most part, have very kind of radical ideals. I mean, even me, I wasn't, I don't know, I wasn't really like radical liberal, but I will say like my ideas were much more ignorant um, for the most part, idealistic for the most part. And once you kind of experience society, you can kind of level out your, your opinions a little bit more. But with that said, I, I don't know. Generally, maybe I would say that a lot of people start leveling out. But due to kind of the, the, the nature of social media and the online space and, and stuff of that nature, people are getting trapped in their um, echo chambers a little bit more than ever before. Do you, uh, don't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, it just takes time. What I notice with politics, and this is something that's been said for decades, is politics creates clever bedfellows. And you'll see people's factions start to shift a little bit. Um, interventionism on foreign policy was strictly right-wing when I was growing up. And now it seems like the right-wing are more isolationist than they've ever been with the other party being more pro-interventionism, at least for defensive measures than they've ever been. You see political realignments a lot. I think a lot of it has to do with online culture People are looking online for their friend group, not just for their political opinion. So if you change your political views, you may be removed out of your friend group or just get along with them less well. So I think there's a bit, it's a bit more of a social stigma added onto it with the internet than there previously was. Yes, yes, I definitely agree to that. Uh, with that said, what is your opinion about third parties and the value of third parties especially kind of like a a moderate party or centrist party and what value do you think that can have on political discourse i think it would be nice um like right now we have cornell west who seems to be running to the left of the democratic party trying to pull out what we see are like five to eight percent of the voting base that identify as progressive or democratic socialists you're never going to win with that message running to the left. Joe Biden's not so bad. Trump's a fascist. and But we're to the left of him because he's failed on all these fronts. I really think if you had that more central, pro-establishment, both of these sides kind of push their own crap, we want to go in and clean up government, pass nothing new, but maybe audit what we already have, I could see that message kind of coming in and doing some work. Um, that's kind of the underlying message between your Ron Paul. Trump said some stuff like that. Bernie said some things that could be conceptualized in the same way as well. That kind of seems to be the root of the populist movement is that government is not working for a lot of people. And those people want to see some sort of change. And when you start looking at polling data, they, they don't agree on what the change is. So I really feel like you just kind of get in there and start tinkering around a little bit. You can make a lot of people happy, especially if you do it from a less partisan stance. Yeah, uh, I, I do think adding that that kind of nuanced and a little bit more, um, you know, 
bipartisan perspective from a more center party can add a lot of value to the discourse and to the conversation and potentially kind of thread that needle uh, between the two sides to the point where things can kind of get pushed forward and there's not a need to kind of fixate yourself on, on one side or the other. Um, the, the value of third parties definitely, you know, the, I've said it constantly that the internet is going to be the third party's best friend. But another thing that I've uh, come across is the value of our voting system changing with things if uh, such as approval voting or star voting. Um, I've become big fans of a different voting system because the one we have now, it, the uh, necessity of only choosing one individual and that mindset of choosing the lesser evil is not as productive to get the, the true appreciation of the voters' mindset of the, the uh, politicians and the elected officials. So having having that type of change, and we're, we're kind of changing slowly and steadily in different ways. We have certain state, states um, implementing approval voting, ranked choice voting, if you heard of it, in certain states. So I think that uh, that way, that kind of strategy could be another powerful strategy in um, making third parties a little bit more relevant, of course. And I, I do want to point this out there. I forgot to respond to someone who commented on one of the, the clips I made for one of the social media platforms, I think it was TikTok. Uh, for, feel free to go follow the TikTok, Purple Political Breakdown. And I think the TikTok title was in reference to the, the value of third parties. And one criticism that this person had was that, oh, you're basically supporting the ability of a third party like one that supports Nick Fuentes to... Uh, be on the ballot you're kind of supporting their their growth in a way right this extremist third party potentially now i i haven't responded to that i forgot to respond to that but i have my own opinions before i, I say my opinions tyler what, what would you respond to that individual that kind of brings up that point sure okay but sunlight is the best disinfectant if you want to see just how unpopular nick Fuentes's views are put him into the mainstream spotlight have the actual like people outside of just Twitter space figure out who this guy is, see what he's saying, and have the full force of the rebuttal actually come at him. I guarantee you he would never even get a percent of the vote generally in a, in a national election and the amount of scrutiny that would be on him. I start to think he'd not want to show his face in public out of shame, to be honest. Uh, the There would be such a huge backlash if someone like that actually made it to the national stage, just to them in particular let them please let them come forward so they can see just how unpopular they really are yeah I, I think people just because they have this kind of small niche interest online people don't realize that at the end of the day although i think the value of minorities is very strong the minority populations because they're the ones who make the true change in order for these minority populations to be as strong as they are they have to appeal to the majority there's no way in hell that nick fuentes and his rhetoric is appealing to the American majority. None. Nobody's going to accept that. Not Republicans aren't. Democrats aren't. Moderates aren't. Nobody's going to accept that. And also utilizing this kind of extreme to kind of use as your primary argument. Basically, don't do this because I fear this. It's pathetic in my opinion. 
it doesn't get you nowhere. There's an extreme danger for everything that we can implement into society. There's not a hundred percent. Okay. This is a hundred percent great. There's no backlash. There's nothing that can go wrong. None of that doesn't exist in society because human nature is very hard to kind of determine. And a lot of these things that we implement is very hard to kind of navigate all the different identities, ideologies, personalities, and there's even more differences that I don't even need to name here. So like Tyler said, it's dumb. Those people, if they got into the spotlight to an extent, they would get crucified for who they are. Like, just imagine if you're an individual, just imagine to yourself, someone from maps, maps has a niche, niche base on the internet that support them. Someone on maps trying to run for election would <laughs> just imagine like, no, that's never going to happen. Okay. They, they would, they would have to basically go zero dark 30 and destroy all their technology and move out of the country. Honestly, if someone tried to support something like that. So, yeah, it's it's such a dumb thing to say, of course. So with that said, let's go into our main topic as we plan to talk about the, the housing crisis in America. To kind of start off, um, how would you explain the housing market to the people? Obviously, people know you got to buy homes. People know what mortgages are. But, like, how would you explain this current condition of the housing market especially compared to you know the past i think right now i i hear and i don't have a lot of research behind this um i hear that houses were significantly cheaper to build in the past which resulted in them being significantly easier to afford especially labor but everything has gone up in price in terms of the construction end of a home that that's what's kind of driving up the prices a bit. Also, we have Fed policy that's causing massive issues. So people on the left and the right, I've heard even people like Stephen Crowder talking about this, BlackRock going in, buying up a bunch of homes, holding on to them until the property value raises due to the lack of supply of more homes, and then reselling those homes back to the market or back to the Fed for that extra rate and just earning money off of nothing but rent seeking. And it's causing the housing market to suck for average people, especially first-time homeowners that don't have that equity to invest in these much higher houses. I'd say right now we're seeing in a lot of the country, a lot of rural areas, no changes at all. I'd say a lot of these changes have to do with more populated areas. We're seeing kind of a lot of corruption in housing. So, yeah, that's definitely what, um, what I'm seeing now in terms of the housing market as well. And a lot of people don't really know how to kind of uh, deal with the situation. As of right now, there's a constant expectation that a housing uh, market crash will eventually happen. But as we've seen, the, the price, the prices just keep on going up and up and up. Uh, I've seen one video saying that um, Warren Buffett is still very much invested into the housing market. And... With that said, if it keeps on going up, obviously less, more and more people won't be able to afford homes. Uh, why do you think that the housing market uh, prices just keep on rising? Well, from what I've seen evidence-wise, uh, again, the cost of everything, cost of lumber, cost of land, cost of labor has all risen. And labor especially, 
we have less people building homes, we have more consolidated larger groups. So regulatory capture is a concept in economics where the more regulation, even safety regulation with good intent, I'm not saying regulation is bad, but the more regulation we pass around a certain market, the harder it is for a smaller business to get involved in that market. And this allots a lot of the market share to be passed to these bigger companies. Over a long period of time, all these small companies start dropping out of that marketplace and we see oligopolies form. And when those form, they start to maybe not make deals because that's illegal, it's considered a cartel, but they start to maybe segment off parts of the country where they won't get much competition from other countries. You see with cable companies, they don't compete very much in certain areas. Some areas you can get Xfinity and some areas you can't. You see that, I see that in other, in other sectors as well. As these smaller markets get pushed out, larger markets come in, they start taking territory and then they can start charging whatever the hell they want because of that lack of competition. As well, again, BlackRock and bad Fed policy driving their policy as well, or pricing as well. Um, interest rates going up because of inflation is another big one right now. We're sitting at an interest rate we haven't seen since 2002. And it did flow a lot back before the 2010s. It would flow up and down a lot, but it would fluctuate between like two and 6%. It would get up to eight and 10 every now and then, but our interest rates right now are sitting consistently at eight, not going back down. That's also really affecting housing prices unless you're in a flocked in mortgage. Do you think this is would be would have been like a natural trend or do you think a large part of it had to do with COVID? and what COVID did to the economy at large throughout the entire world. It, it's place to place. Uh, if you look at places like Florida and Houston, um, you see houses being built to almost keep up with their influx of people. Um, if you look at other areas, though, like other cities, uh, you can see New York City has grown over the last 10 years. They're having trouble finding housing for everybody that's there. They're seeing the prices of those of the housing rise because of the lack of supply with the increase in demand. It really depends. Um, there's a concept I heard a lot about housing in California. It's called nimbyism, not in my backyard. They don't want affordable housing being built next to them. These people in their mind worked hard to get into a nice neighborhood so their kids can be raised away from crime and good schools, et cetera. So they don't want low income people in those neighborhoods and it creates zoning laws. These are the highest donators and the most outspoken people in politics. They're the ones that call their congressmen when they want something done and control a good chunk of a vote in these smaller elections so they can actually get these politicians to move that affordable housing elsewhere, causing prices to go up everywhere for housing in general. And that's kind of what my plan when we get into it my proposal for right-wing affordable housing kind of addresses that to a certain degree all right well yeah let's uh, hear that plan and see if we can kind of break it break it apart throughout the discussion so yeah what are, what is your uh, proposal in kind of dealing with this housing crisis uh, moving forward well the video i made on this is over an hour long of me just rambling on and on about all these different subjects pertaining to this so the easy and quick way I sum it up in the video and generally is Trump's idea for opportunity zones where he would take an area in the inner city, he would cut taxes, he would give all sorts of incentives for businesses to move in. I kind of want to piggyback off that idea, but I want to do depopulation zones. I want to take people out of the city and move them into more rural areas, growing these small towns up a little bit, not adding too many people, not upsetting their, their little hegemonious community, but also with competitive districts in mind. So if you have a, an area that votes 70% GOP, you start moving in some city Democrats, not enough to upset the flow of their town, but enough to make it a competitive district. 
um, with that, we start doing government housing. So in the United States right now, a 600 square foot home costs about $50,000 to $70,000 to build fresh. Uh, all cost, labor, everything, expenses, all the licenses you need. If we take that and we move it to an area with cheaper housing, cheaper lumber, cheaper fuel, because it's a less populated area, then, and we're building in bulk, we can get those prices down significantly more. Then we start doing a government lending program for 1%, and we give first-time homeowners an opportunity to move to an area. Now, a lot of people want to live in the city because that's where the jobs are, that's where the fun is. So in order to get these housing areas to work, we also have to bring in local businesses that we would give tax cuts to and incentives to get them to move into that area, as well as we want to bring in entertainment to make sure people don't want to just go back to the city. And that would see city housing prices drop just naturally. You would need less rent assistance. So you could take some of the money from rent assistance and mortgage assistance and push it over to these people because with rent dropping naturally due to less demand um, in cities, less rent assistance is needed. So I really feel like we could free up a lot of money by doing something like this and have it fully paid for by the people getting the loans. Okay. So yeah, let's uh, try to break this up a little bit. So to kind of start off, um, when it comes to the individuals and kind of moving them from these overpopulated areas, uh, typically urban areas, city areas, of course, to these uh, more, um, you know, rural areas that you're referring to, to the point where, you know, you're not populating it enough for it to be gentrified, of course. Uh, how do you incentivize these people to, to move from their home to a different home? I know you mentioned jobs. Um, so that's one factor. Well, yeah, kind of go through your approach on how to convince these people. So that would be a first-time homeowners. You give them some sort of incentive. And we have mechanisms we already use in place uh, to attract businesses to certain areas. Hey, if you come and put your business here, we'll cut your corporate tax rate to zero for the first 10 years and help you pay for the uh, the infrastructure you need in order to like, we'll build you a nice private road and blah, blah, blah. So you can get this all set up. Uh, that's how you get businesses in there. When the jobs are there and affordable home ownership opportunities are there, young people will come. I feel like that's the, the easiest part is convincing people to move to these growing cities. Uh, I live in a growing city. It's, uh, it's gained about half a million people over the last decade due to, uh, one nuclear power plant and one, uh, military base that does, I think, the biggest uh, cyber technology in the country, people just fluctuated this area to blow it up and just witnessing it firsthand. I thought if we could turn something like this into policy, make it a little, take this organic process and turn it into policy, we could start moving people out of cities. Uh, there's an idea in statistics that there's a reversion to the mean. You'll see new stuff come out and people will go flock to that new thing. But over 10 years, they'll start to come back to the normal trends. And I feel like we are about to revert to the mean post-COVID of people moving out of cities. And with 66% homeownership in the U.S. right now, we definitely have some room for first time and homeowners generally to get some new houses. I really feel like convincing people to move would be the easiest step once you get everything else in place. Interesting. I definitely see the see the uh, the logic in terms of appealing to the need of work. I mean, that's pretty pretty apparent from from my point of view at the very least. Um, but with that said, especially like young people who who move to the city, it seems to me that there is a definitely a, 
a different type of appeal to kind of be there right obviously people who are like on the lower income who are kind of stuck there we can kind of think a lot of families that are living there based off circumstance versus based off you know want or even need to an extent of of being there uh versus like the other individuals who kind of live in the city based off opportunity like we know we can probably think of a lot of people who kind of move over to a place like san francisco la new york city um or even like uh like the other areas around New York City, maybe even Manhattan. And we probably can name other kind of big cities throughout some of the more bigger states that that exist. And the move there obviously is job related. And those jobs that they are moving towards to, are going to are jobs that are specifically those areas who won't be able to move them or transfer them over to a royal area for, for obvious reasons. And other potential opportunities, whether it's like networking, or you know quality of life because there are certain things cities will have that rural areas will never have so the the appeal to those people won't be jobs they they they're living there strictly for opportunity basically so are you is the assumption that we're not trying to convince those individuals who are going through the city in the in the first place we're trying to convince the people who are already kind of like in the lower threshold economically in terms of income and trying to get them to a place that's a little bit more uh, suitable to their needs. I'd say the latter is who you really want to appeal to. If somebody wants to work in a tech tech company and Silicon Valley is their best place to do that, they're going to move to Silicon Valley. We can never compete with that. We can never replicate that. We're not going to try to. The reason why those tech companies are right there is because they're closer to some cables, I guess that's pushed the internet over into Asia. And that's why they picked that spot in particular. And so it's a, the geological location of that is something that's advantageous to those particular companies. You're never going to be able to move those people out. What they would be is the 80% that stay in the city. You only need 20% of the city to move out. I think focusing on the people that can't afford to be there as much would definitely help. Um, young people in general too a lot of them do go to the city that's the entertainment thing i've tried to bring up in excitement you're not going to win them all i had to, i had to move to dallas and live there for a while in the city to realize that city life wasn't for me um the value of humanity like when you have a bunch of people clumped together like that they start each individual human being matters less instead of seeing a car accident and saying oh that's my buddy's uncle you see a car accident and say this mother effer is in the way when i'm trying to get to work um and I think that getting people out of cities into an area, there's also studies that, uh, that look at people's happiness as opposed to how dense the area they're living in is. So what you're saying is like, there's not enough excitement. There's not enough drawl to keep young people there. Absolutely agree with you. But at a certain point when it gets too dense, it's also not appealing to most people in that as well. We have to kind of work toward a middle ground. So it might, you might want to start with a couple already growing cities like i'm in augusta augusta would be one of them you'd want to start this policy with to try to bring this influx of people in due to the city already naturally growing and as you analyze that process kind of work out from there um this place also lacks entertainment a bit people come here for work and it seems like as soon as they make it they leave for somebody somewhere more exciting local sports teams uh when I lived in buffalo they would do like things in the park all the time you have to get some community organization for entertainment and get that get that bump in a bit. Um, 
I don't know. I really like, there's nothing that can match the city experience. This is more for people that once they hit 30 and they're thinking about buying their own home or they have a family that they want to have a home for and live in a nice community away from a crime ridden neighborhood or something like that. That's kind of who I'm trying to target is the the people starting a family. Okay. Um, so with that said, uh, we talked about the the democratic uh, demographic of people who be most likely to move. Can you explain a little bit more in depthly in terms of the city obviously losing the the individuals that they lose to to the rural areas? One thing that we realize in these in these locales that you're referring to is that there are homes that they just can't buy for for a number of reasons that you reference, of course. Um, so all these locations that they can't buy up or they can't even afford to rent out, of course, um, in the city themselves with the decreased amount of people that are in the city, how exactly are they, how exactly is the city benefiting from the less people or less people in that area to the point where they can potentially start buying homes? How does... How does that equation work for the city necessarily? I couldn't tell you exactly. I can just tell you generally, as we have some overcrowding in a lot of cities, and if they have those zoning laws I was talking about before, they are currently unable to keep up with the demands for housing. That's why the price of housing is going up. Um, <clears throat> if there's a higher demand than supply, the cost to rent goes up because somebody will pay it. And then if somebody won't pay it, the cost to rent will drop. Um, it's more complicated than that, obviously. That's just a general summary of it. Right. So it would benefit the city in... I'm not sure if it would really benefit the city much at all. It would just stop some of the overcrowding and overpopulation problems that they're seeing as a result. Um, they just... It would free things up. It would lower the cost of living in those areas, which would make people happier. Some of these more dense areas where people tend to be more angry or less humane due to the the, com the compact nature of how many people are in these small areas, they would probably lighten up a little bit. New Yorkers might be a little happier. Um, can't guarantee that. But, you know, I, I think the overall benefit for the city would be that'd probably be the party that benefits the least. The parties that would benefit for the most would be these small towns and the homeowners probably. So what do you say about the homeless situation, right? The people who are on the streets that are homeless uh, for a variety of reasons, of course, is your proposal taking them into account in the equation? I do. I have two paragraphs about that. And uh, I break homeless down into three categories. you got your economically homeless, which are the people that this would target directly. Um, those are the ones we would try to get into homes. Those are the ones we would try to recover. Um, a lot of people just can't afford living in cars. I think there's, I think I want to say like one third of homeless are just economically homeless. There's no mental issues. There's no drug addiction issues. The other two categories, I don't really want to dig into too much because I don't go into them as policy. I don't have a solution for them in here. Um, like if somebody's homeless because they have mental issues or if somebody's homeless because they're a drug addict, I think that we have systems in place. We could probably add more for them. I just, they're not really mentioned in my housing policy, unfortunately, just the economic homeless. And those, I do have a couple plans in here. Try to figure out why they're homeless. If it's just the fact that they can't afford to live in the area that they're at, 
Um, places like West Virginia have proposals where they'll pay somebody almost up to five figures to move to West Virginia, keep your remote job and work your remote job while living in West Virginia. We could emulate something like that. We could say, hey, we're going to give you a good chunk of change and help you with the down. There's no down payment. You just start paying 1%. And we have like five jobs for you to choose from that are brand new factories that are just built in this town that we're trying to work on and grow. Go on out there. Your cost of living will be lower. Your gas will be half as much. All your expenses, your food, everything's going to plummet. And your mortgage is only going to be $700 a month. So go do that. You won't live in the city, but you'll have a home. And I really think that would appeal to a lot of people, economically homeless, young people, things like that. And I don't lie, that, that appeals to me, but I, I, have a, I have a reason to be down here, so I can't just leave. So, But if I didn't have a reason going there, you know what I'm saying? That sounds like a great plan, honestly. Um, so, okay, so we kind of covered uh, the homeless situation. I definitely think a program, as you mentioned, could definitely be beneficial for them. Uh, to kind of move to these kind of rural areas, these uh, small town areas. How do you determine the, the threshold of potential over, not overpopulation, but like maxima, maximum population to the point where they potentially are not gentrifying the area? Because we see it like um perfect example. If you guys watch South Park, right? We've seen in the South Park episodes, where they were changing their South Park town into a more sophisticated area and see how gentrified it got after they added the Whole Foods and a bunch of other kind of uh, um, uh, amenities, of course. So that tends to happen once you, you know, bring new businesses in, bring new perspectives and cultures in. And from what you said earlier, you're trying to make sure that there's there's a limit so it's not overdoing it for these towns because there's still a lot of these towns there's an appeal to kind of stay who they are for the most part right so how how do you kind of determine what that that percentage is for new new people that i don't have an answer for my general guess was that the population over time you can't bring in more than like two to three percent population increase in a town over maybe a couple of years you don't want to go too fast with it you don't want to piss off the locals things like you don't want to raise their cost of living the more people influx in sometimes the higher the cost of living will get you don't want to upset what you already have there so i don't i don't know enough about some of these subjects and i say that in my video uh there's a lot of things that are a bit over my head here i would like to get somebody that's maybe a zoning expert to talk to to sit down and say hey how can this can be practically constructed? Maybe somebody that deals with economics and housing to sit, sit down and talk with and find somebody. There's a lot of holes that I still need to fill in in this policy. I don't have an answer for that, unfortunately. I need, I need a professional in the actual field that we're talking about to come scrutinize my plan. Fair enough, fair enough. You know, all kind of uh, solutions kind of start with an idea. And I, I definitely see hearing a lot of the the logic that comes from it in terms of appealing to, you know, growing these areas um, in, in importance. Because with everything said, you know, with trying not to kind of piss off these rural areas at the same time, there is a recognition that we don't even we don't really talk about royal areas in politics. Um, they're not a part of the conversation. One of the reasons why is there's not a strong enough community to appeal to politically um you know they have no 
relevance to an extent to towards policy because they are rural areas. So a growth in, you know, population and growth in uh, local economy from that specific area also grows their their importance, their value to the state and to the country as whole. Um, it would give them an opportunity to create better schools because no matter how bad you think city schools are, I guarantee rural Scarlet schools are nowhere near better. Uh, better schools, um, better services, you know, medically, better police department, obviously. So even though there's a certain level of like cultural understanding whether or not people think gentrification is good or bad or kind of uh trying to appeal to these differences of people to the point where you don't want to be in danger if you're a new person that's going in this rural area there needs to be an understanding that growth in this area is growth for everybody there as well so there there's some uh there's some things there that can benefit not only the the people but like you said the rural areas as well uh with that said when it comes down to um appealing to the businesses that you're referring to before having them come and um kind of migrate to these areas I know you mentioned a few kind of proposals on how the government can appeal to the businesses, but can you go into a little bit more depth, especially the, the potential concerns that the supply and demand may not be there for these, uh, for these local businesses? Now, it depends on how, see, this is something I'm kind of wrestling around with because I am not a fan of planned economies, but I feel like the more planning you put into this, the better it could be for these businesses. Let's say you have a tech company that wants to, to, to participate in the program and they want to go here. The best thing for them would to try to be to attract people that would fit into that tech company. So you tell that business, we're going to be looking for people that would actually be able to work for you in this specific area. Now, oh my dog. <laughs> now somewhere like Georgia, they actually teach as a foreign language um, computer programming languages. So you can learn Java, Python, or PHP or something like that in high school in Georgia. And it's, I think it's a really great thing they did down here for that. And you could use that to attract the business. Look, you come into this area, 25% of these kids coming out of high school, no Java. They could go ahead and write you an object-oriented method right now. And they would require minimal on-site training. They just need to be brought up to speed for what you do. You could tell them that because like a lot of businesses have trouble hiring. They have to hire firms to do it for them. They're all on these websites like LinkedIn and Indeed constantly looking for the best person. If you tell them this plan could help funnel those people to you, it would really pull a lot of businesses. And I feel like as well as the the, the tried and true method of cutting taxes, um, Amazon going to New York when, before AOC raised a big stink about it and got the the tax cut taken away, Amazon was getting an offer to get like their corporate taxes paid for if they went to New York for an X amount of years. And that would be something else that we already do uh, to attract businesses in certain areas, um, give them incentives. There's a lot of incentives. You could say you're going to help them pay for the infrastructure again. Uh, we'll pay via private road. We'll put down the foundation for the building. You build your building up on top of it and go from there or something like that. Funding uh, like the chips bill, something similar to that maybe. Okay, so with that said, um, there's a lot of uh, things that I think that definitely would appeal to the businesses that you're referring to. Um, my my only thing 
is I think this will kind of help kind of demonstrate the, the businesses a little bit more for, for people who are listening is what businesses do you think you can truly appeal to that will be able to be successful migrating to a rural area? Well, uh, Let's see, let's see in terms of the city. So right now the city has a certain amount of supply and demand in terms of certain goods and services. If 20% of people, let's say hypothetically, are moving out of that city, to be to keep these businesses sustained, about 20% of those businesses might potentially also have to move out of the city. Um, the fact that you have that potential, the fact that you have that potential to move some of these companies to where there could be enough business for them to have a profitable market would appeal. That's really the bottom line. That's really all you have to appeal, appeal to. It's the risk of them moving out there that you're going to have to absolve them of by maybe promising to help them out with funding and things like that. Hold on, I think this joke. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Um, so I, I feel like a lot of businesses that would be successful again if you told a tech company we're going to get you an area we're going to start bringing in programmers people that know people that you would need to fill your roster and you're going to have three or four tech companies out there with you we're going to turn into a little tech town kind of like hershey's chocolate town this will be one similar to silicon valley for remote tech workers um you could get those i i only bring up tech that's the field i work in so uh you could get let's say you need object-oriented programmers you could get people that know how to write in java python and things like that to come move out there looking for these jobs and then hopefully it would come together in that regard it would take some time and again i need i, I need some expert help i need a zoning person or something to come in also another factor i didn't get to throw in yet so there's new designing for homes that helps seal in heat and cooling to cause them to put off less carbon emissions. So for the climate change argument, you could have this new standard of home being the one that's being built. And if you're shopping for your goods and building in a place that's like Essex County in California is only one to 2% higher than the national average in terms of cost of living, whereas LA County is about 40 to 50% higher. If you're building this home in LA County, it might cost you $100,000 where if you build it in Essex, it's only going to cost you 60. I feel like on a grand scale, you tell businesses that it's cheaper for you to build there, cheaper for you to run your business there, and you can run the whole damn thing remotely in today's age. You could probably get a lot. It would have to be businesses that, that work online. The service industries and such would fill themselves in after. You would need, if someone says, oh, they need a fine dining restaurant out there. That's the opportunity that would create itself, essentially. Close my door. <laughs> no, up now. Yeah, that dog, dog is loving the uh, squeaky toy. She's a, she's a shelter dog, so she's a little attention. Nope, you know Um, so I think I do think like certain job or businesses can definitely translate in a lot of areas um, pretty efficiently. Like the tech they were referring to, I could see them translating. I don't see like there being a huge kind of hurdle for those individuals. Like you just got to make sure you got the internet and the right personnel there, obviously. the I guess the, the ones is like the, the service or like the some of the potential harder ones or ones that kind of distribute kind of goods and services to an extent, right? So if you got a uh, location that kind of, uh, sells products kind of like a little mini market 
there's no guarantee that the the local community will care about what you're selling, right? And I guess another kind of potential worry for certain individuals that maybe or maybe a food place is um, how are you going to be able to get your goods effectively transported consistently? Because obviously transporting goods to a city is way more efficient for that type of company versus transporting it to the a rural area, of course. Um, so there's a probably that probably a lot of logistics behind that. I guess the uh, one thing that you can kind of put in their favor is even though some of the maybe sell sales will be lower based off the area they're living in and potential incentives that they're giving, they still will be able to make a profit based off their location. So that that could be a potential thing that they uh that can work in their favor, of course. Um so with that said, the 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 scare of appealing to kind of foreign individuals basically is always potentially troubling for for a business uh business owner, especially since we know a rural area is not gonna be as multicultural as the city. Like there there's less opportunity to appeal to people because they're a little bit more uh closeted into whatever way of life that they're living at. How would you feel about some type of program? I don't know if this exists or not, that they can kind of put potentially experiment with the clientele in that rural area to see if uh, their business could translate properly at, for a certain amount of time. Do you think that would help alleviate potentially any unease for some of these businesses? Absolutely. I think that already exists. I think that, uh, these companies, like I know Walmart has already worked out that equation that you're talking about. They need a certain amount of people in a certain amount of economic bracket for a Walmart to be profitable in that area. And then as soon as you pass that threshold, a Walmart pops up and things like that. Once you have a certain amount of people that maybe are in the upper class bracket, a Whole Foods pops up. So I think they've already mapped out a lot of those equations. They know who their demographics are. It's more, I think it's more in the onus of the business owners, especially some of these bigger firms, to figure out the clientele. And I think they already have decades ago, and they have it down to a science at this point. Um, I've seen some of the numbers on it. I don't have any reference offhand. But I really feel like once you – if you can get those people – to that area and some of those startup jobs to that area, the growth cycle will start to pick up on its own. And again, with service industry jobs, like if there's a niche that's not filled in a town, uh, I live in an area, there was no real fine dining restaurants. So some people noticed that they opened up three fine dining restaurants, all of them popped off. They're all massive now. Um, just because there was a lack of that good or service. I, it's kind of the whole idea of competition where there's a need for something, somebody will step up and give that need. And if your firm isn't giving that need, uh, your competitor will step up and do it for you. Um, so some of these highly competitive sectors, I think they will take care of themselves. It's more the oligopoly sectors that are gonna be a little tougher to work with, as well as transportation. A lot of these areas I'm talking about are the drive-through states where those goods and products already drive through those states, already drive by those towns, maybe a hundred miles away, they just pass right by them. Now they'd stop there. So I feel like we already have the infrastructure in place to get those things to these areas. It's just, they, they just don't need to, they, they go, everyone, they go from New York to LA and then from LA, they get distributed out into the smaller 
districts and you could more do that on the way with bigger spots along the way just to drop them off at all right fair enough fair enough all right so i guess the the last prong we want to touch upon from this proposal a little bit more in depth is you know we we talked a lot about you know the individuals the businesses the translating to these rural areas but overall the 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 conversation is about you know decreasing market prices right the uh, housing market prices uh, making it easier for people to afford homes in the first place so can you go in a little bit more in depth on you know how this solution properly translates to these individuals being able to you know afford their homes for the market price shrinking and how that would help you know the country overall so uh it wouldn't help some cities some cities already have areas where it's pretty low cost living for a city if you look at dallas versus uh seattle it's about two and a half times more expensive to live in seattle i think this would help a lot of younger people that haven't made it yet uh in the regard of Again, I, I kind of brought up how Essex, Essex County is only like 2% above the national average in terms of cost of living, where LA County is 50% above the national average. It's a huge spike in how much, like if the cost of living in, in let's say is $10,000 in Essex, that means it's 15,000 in LA. Um, if you're building these houses in this cheaper area, you're already saving money on land and, and goods and expenses. As well, if you're buying, if the government's buying in huge bulk and paying in huge bulk, yeah, sure, it might cost you $20,000 to get the labor to build this one house. But if you tell them, hey, we got it, we need 100 houses, and we want those at 15000 a piece, you just save $5,000 in every house, hypothetically. So you're using this giant plan to cut down on overall expenses by buying in bulk, and that could be directly passed on. Now, there is some high-risk lending, and I worked in car sales for a while before I went back to school, and I saw like people with better credit got lower APRs. I'd want the bottom rate of that APR to only be 1%. For a low risk loan, you're only paying the government 1% interest to make up for inflation. And that's it. And otherwise, the government's, it's going to be kind of a nonprofit program where the government's only paid back for the tax money they spent. And then turning around, you have some people that are a little higher risk. Maybe they had a car repossessed or something like that. I would want to see only the top end of this loan APR only be about 5% for the high risk loans. And we have all sorts of programs. They already, they're going to have to pay it back eventually, even if we have to take it out of their taxes. So if they can't pay their mortgage this month, we don't turn around and evict them. We now are running this through the government so we can give people all sorts of programs to work with the government to pay this off. We could, since it's such a low interest rate, unlike college loans, if you froze their payments for a year, it wouldn't be this huge impact that you saw with freezing the loan payments for COVID, where people's interest rate was still building and building and building. They added $30,000 to their loan amount when they weren't paying a cent. This would keep it so low that it would still add a little bit, but it only to, to compensate for inflation. You could not pay your, let's say somebody in your family got sick, the go your government program decides, hey, you don't have to pay your mortgage for a year because you're out of work, your family member's sick, you're on, dis they're on disability, blah, blah, blah. We could find ways to make it easier for people that are financially struggling to still continue to pay their mortgage through these programs. So I definitely see some, uh, some logic regarding it, um, in decreasing certain like, uh, you know, costs based off the, you know, building of homes and, you know, how, how that could obviously benefit in the overall, 
um, decrease in market price, of course. How do you prevent some of these companies that we refer to, such as BlackRock, from buying these new homes in these rural areas? Uh, First-time homeowner policies. A lot of these policies are directed at first-time homeowners or people. You, you can't be above a certain threshold. We don't want a BlackRock doing it, but we also don't want rich people just coming in and buying three homes to jack up the price and resell them. We need to make sure to have something written into the policy to make these homes flip-proof, maybe for 20 years. And then after the houses started degrading quality, that's when somebody comes in, renovates the home or whatever. So maybe the first 20 years of these homes being built, only first-time homeowners can get into them. And then maybe they can be resold after that or something like that. But there has to be something written into the policy to make sure that large firms don't come in and just suck this property all up and turn around and resell it at their will. Not only will that ruin the policy because they will come in and just start finding the first buyer they can find. Maybe not somebody that would acclimate into the businesses you brought into that area, or maybe not somebody, maybe they would sell the 80% Republicans and flip a district around where I want competitive district laws. Uh, we see some in different states, like they want to keep their districts 60-40 at worst, closer to 50-50 if possible. That'd be one of my goals when you're allocating people to these districts and trying to get them in there. Uh, hey, I want to apply for this government program, and here's my skill set. Okay, we got four different locations in three different states we could move you to, or maybe all in this state, that all would fit your skill set. There's job, several jobs in each one that you can work at. This one right here is the cheapest cost of living. This one right here has the most job opportunities, and you can move people to there. Um, and that way, if somebody like BlackRock wanted to come in, they'd have to deal with somebody at the government saying, sorry, you're too big. You're not an individual with a skill set looking for their first home. You're a firm looking to rent seek and artificially jack up prices. Go after yourself. All right, fair enough. I find the uh, solution very interesting. Um, I can definitely see certain appeals to it um, on the long run. Uh, not only can it definitely benefit the housing market uh, prices, potentially help it go down, but overall, I think it definitely can improve the rural areas, give a lot of people that are um, on the lower spectrum of uh, income in these cities a better opportunity in different locations um, a lot of the time some of these people want the opportunity want the better opportunity but they have no idea how to kind of find it right and uh, this would be a proposal to kind of put them in that situation where they can find it of course um, in a different way so I, I do think there's some some appeal to that uh, it, it definitely helps in some areas for sure um, any last things that you want to say? Any uh, last kind of things you haven't mentioned that you want to mention as of right now? Just the most important thing I want to keep re reiterating on. The reason why I'm out doing debates, getting on panels, trying to get my name out there is because I want to have this open policy think tank for a YouTube channel. I don't care if I only get a thousand subscribers at max, as long as they're all people that are on the mission to help perfect this in the policy. So if anyone knows somebody that's in housing, that writes policy, that does all any of the things that would help this policy grow. Those are the types of people I want, professionals, working professionals. Those are the types of people I want to see this video and come work with me. I also have another idea to kind of close the wealth gap and it's restructuring of copyright and patent laws 
to make it so we can promote more competition within the markets. And it's something that would appeal to the idea itself appeals to left wingers and the way it would function would appeal a lot to right wingers and raising competition up. I really want to get these out to professionals and turn these raw ideas into practical policy. There's just so many things I touch on here. Like, I don't know much about, uh, like unemployment law or how the, the $8 billion that goes to California's homeless people. I need somebody that's an expert in these things to come in look at my ideas. Tell me where I can improve upon them. Tell me what would it work just based on the structure of the laws. Tell me, alternative ideas in order to get to my end goal. I would love people to just come in and rip it apart. Somebody I've been chatting with is a Kano boy since he has an economics degree. I want him to come in and scrutinize the economics of this idea. It's just getting someone to watch an hour long video where I just talk policy for an hour straight and sit through it and take notes and materialize their argument back and then come give it to me and have another three hour discussion about it. It's just such a boring thing for somebody. You really have to have a passion for wanting to get something like this done and also just policy in the first place. Um, it's a hard sell to get people to come take a look at this stuff. But if you know somebody that all this criteria fits them, send them my way. I'd love to talk to them. All right, sounds good. All his information is obviously on my website, so you can definitely check all that out, of course, at www.purplepoliticalbreakdown.com. And if anything you found interesting here that you heard of, of course, and you want to kind of uh, enter the conversation, maybe improve the idea, or provide your own solution, you can contact me via my email on my website as well. So do appreciate you coming on, Tyler. I thought this was a very interesting proposal. Um, this area is definitely one of those areas that I'm not as knowledgeable as, about compared to other areas, of course. You know, I know some surface stuff. I know for sure that the housing market is in a very complicated situation. There's really not a easy fix or easy answer to it. Um, it could be a situation where as the economy kind of gets back on track, then eventually the housing market will kind of get back on track or... We'll just have to wait until it completely crashes and just start all over. So we'll we'll, we'll see how that kind of works out ultimately uh, moving forward. Uh, but like I said, if you guys enjoyed the conversation, you guys can rate it five stars. You can got, like and subscribe on the YouTube channel or on any other social media platform that I'm on. Hope you guys did enjoy. Y'all have a good one. We'll check it out, y'all. We got what you need. We're all living in apartments, condos, vans. Well, dude, even you can have a studio. A studio in a box. Yes, we can help you with that right here at Blind Knowledge. We work on your budget, and we figure out your measurements. We'll get you the best sound for the best price. Let me know, 877-237-1143, or at blindknowledge.com. Yep.